Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Cars.com. Have you heard about the Your Garage feature on Cars.com? Here's how it works. You add your car to your garage to track its market value and cash in when the time is right to sell. Track both your car's historical and projected value. When it's time to sell, easily secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on Cars.com. One of the pleasures of making Freakonomics Radio is that I get to speak with some of the most brilliant researchers and social scientists in the world, along with the occasional physical scientist and perhaps a stray government official. But there are other sorts of people I admire, musicians, for instance, who typically don't fit into our show. That's changed recently as we've launched a few special series, one on CEOs, one on sports, and our latest series called How to Be Creative. This last one has given me the chance to speak with musicians and artists of all kinds, as well as scientists and inventors. Occasionally, one of these conversations is so rich that we can't help but put it out in its entirety, as we're doing with this bonus episode. It's an interview with Elvis Costello, the 64-year-old singer and songwriter from England who now lives in Vancouver with his wife, the jazz singer Diana Krall, and their two kids. Costello has been making excellent records since the mid-1970s, records that range from punkish pop to super-dense super-pop to country and western, from earnest to sardonic. He's particularly adept at bringing a postmodern flair to the elegant foundations of the old-school songbook style. And that's what he's done on his newest record, which is called Look Now. Just how versatile is Elvis Costello? Over the years, his collaborators have included Burt Bacharach, the Brodsky Quartet, Anne-Sophie von Otter, Paul McCartney, the Charles Mingus Orchestra, and Alan Toussaint. If you're at all a serious fan of popular music, Elvis Costello has at least been on your periphery for several decades. For a time, he was nearly very, very famous, but to those who love his music, he's way better than famous. He's an original, a musician's musician, a writer's writer. He's also got the rare ability to create music that is both high-minded and open-minded. And as you'll hear now, he does that in conversation as well. Hope you enjoy. If you would just say your name and what you do, however you'd like to describe that. Uh, hello, I'm Elvis Costello and I'm some kind of musician and uh, a writer. Mm -hmm. So um, let's start with your new record, which uh, I love. Congratulations. I think Thank it's remarkable. Um, it's rich and dense, but also gritty and funny, and it's modern and traditional, and it's a record that no one in the world but Elvis Costello could have written. Well, that's a pretty, that's a pretty good compliment. But that, that's kind of what I hoped to do, to be, to be really truthful, was I had these songs, some of them I'd written a while ago. Some of them were written in collaboration. Some of them were written very recently. And I knew that they were songs that would 
be served by my band, mm-hmm. but they would give us an opportunity to show everything that we can do, not just one aspect of, you know, a, a four-piece rock and roll band is often just asked to be a four-piece rock and roll band. And that's great fun. But it's uh, it's also great to be able to bring to anything that which you've learned, that which you've come to understand, be able to kind of quiet yourself to the mood of a ballad, and in this case, play in collaboration with Burt Bacharach. You know, I couldn't have imagined us pulling that off 20 years ago or longer. He was wild, dynamite, and she was rare as treasure. That's not the kind of story you deny you write in the liner notes i wanted to make a record that we couldn't have made back then yeah there's no point in really there's never to me to me there's never been any point in making the previous record again yeah. uh, so each one has as to, to my ear being quite different i mean to people who don't hear those increments change or don't have the same appreciation i probably all my records sound the same but that's <laughs> they're tuned to different things than i am and the great thing is we have a we have a we're totally spoiled for choice you know we have so much stuff we can listen to from the past from the present stuff that's you know secret stuff that's right in the headlines you don't have to have one above the other it's it isn't necessarily a hierarchy yeah and one of the only you know positive things about the changes in in the way music is heard uh, is that the hierarchical aspect of it is sort of become less oppressive Uh, there are still people that sell massive amounts of records and people are obsessed with those achievements but some of the most interesting things are happening in little corners and that's not just that's not to say well i'm making the best of it because i used to sell records and now there aren't records to sell it's just that it, that's the way it is. I find that the records that really interest me by other people, whether they're people of my generation or whether they're brand new artists, they tend to be things you stumble upon. <laughs> and it's, it re- reminds me of how wonderful it was to feel as if you had personal possession of, of a record that nobody else knew about, when, which was the way it was when I started out. So when you were a kid, your dad was a singer for what sounds to be a pretty wonderful, uh, like a dance band, you call them. Stop that playing around, tell me if you want me to. Days are slipping by when I could be kissing you. Yeah, they were trem- You know, they probably they nobody would regard them as hip in the slightest. Thing. <laughs> but they, the leader Joe Loss, he managed to front a band from the late twenties to the to the eighties. You know, he was a remarkable character in English light entertainment, and he had a very good ear for two things: people, talented singers. I mean, Vera Lynn made her debut with him. My father later was, you know, he had good singers. And uh, my dad had two other singing partners. And they were on the model of the Glenn Miller Band. They weren't by any means up with the rock and roll vibe or anything like that. But as time went on, because of the uh, curious way radio was set up in England, the way we heard a lot of popular songs were as they were interpreted by dance bands and light music ensembles of all dimensions. Um, what do you re- mean the way radio was set up in England? Why weren't well, you hearing? It, it was there was only um, there was an agreement between the BBC and the Musicians Union that there were only five hours of recorded music allowed a day. Oh, the Musicians Union being live music. Like, yeah, don't put us out of business, they, BBC. You play recorded music for more than five hours a day. So bear in mind that there was only the BBC. There was no commercial radio in England. There was one station which we could beam in from Luxembourg, which broadcast in English and played continuous pop music. 
But it wasn't until the pirate station started up in the uh, you know mid '60s that the revolution to the American model of of 12 to 24 hour radio took hold in England, and therefore we heard a lot of things filtered. And that's why you see in, in archival clips the Beatles and very big bands like that appearing on light entertainment shows with comedians. And, you know, they would have to get their music out somehow. And the opportunities to play on television were limited to maybe one or two pop shows a week on television. And I'm talking about all the recorded music. So you're dividing up, you know, the, the classical music, the pop music, jazz that so there were a lot of lot of broadcasts of live music whether they you know they were bands interpreting the hits of the day or little shows that presented people playing music for for broadcasts like yeah. jazz ensembles or folk singers i never knew that so that's fascinating i wonder if you you believe in retrospect that that scarcity um retarded a little bit a certain kind of original or yeah original British music making. No, it had the opposite effect. Huh. I would say that the the rarity of it sharpened the wits of the people that got through. You know, although there were obviously contradictions in it. I mean, a lot of the rock and roll singers that were were on the radio when I, because my parents didn't really listen to rock and roll; they were jazz fans. Rock and roll seemed a bit flimsy. I have to be honest, because I never heard any of the really original, exciting stuff because it didn't get played. We heard this sort of vanilla version of it that was, you know, on that they were local acts that had been styled and given names to sound like American acts. So it was the Beatles, really, that blew that up. And, you know, the Beatles came and signed to... They were turned down by the first label that they, they auditioned for. And then they went to Parlophone, which was an EMI label, but think of the name. What does it mean? It's a, it's a, it was a talking label. It was a comedy label. I don't think they really knew what they had. I think they, nobody's ever said this that much, but I, I think they might have thought they were a novelty act initially. <laughs> you know, I'm sure the people up, up at the top of the company, George Martin obviously understood what they were, but I think they thought they're probably a one-hit wonder and people that spoke in Northern English accents in those days were mostly comedians. Mm -hmm. You've got to remember what we're talking about, the BBC, where they still put on evening dress, you know, dinner jackets, to read the news on the radio. I mean, they've always had services that broadcast in different languages, but the home broadcasting was very much two things. The sort of, what they call BBC English, which was a sort of kind of formalized English, and nor mostly Northern English comedians or people at a musical who were genial sort of hosts of things. But the idea that it would reflect real life was... Not really. As a kid in the north, I mean, you were from London originally. Then, when your parents split, yes, yeah, you moved we to stayed Liverpool. in London. I grew up in in the suburbs, in the western suburbs of, of you know, you wouldn't call it London because we were out so far, and it wasn't a, an, you know, it wasn't like a a bleak place at all. It was very leafy, and and but I spent a lot of school holidays on Merseyside. So, my family being my dad from Birkenhead, my mother from Liverpool. I spent, you know, a lot of holidays with staying at my grandmother's house. So I felt as much at home there. I was actually taken north as a baby on christened there. You know, I mean, I. So I had the sort of feeling of belonging to both places. It's it's hard to feel you come from London, because it's such a mixture of neighbourhoods and overlays of culture. You know, if you come from one of the old neighbourhoods. In particularly in the east or the north of the town, people say, "Oh, I'm North London. Or I'm East London." 
West London gets a little bit more foggy about identity, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. We just sort of live out there Who and, you and you know your friends. When you're out there? I've always supported Liverpool since the yeah, early 60s. Yeah, well, that was easy. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, no, they were in second division when I started. Is that right? Yeah, oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah, know I went that. to yeah. see them the year before they came up. Well, you're having a very nice season this year and they last year was exciting. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so why so long between records? I'm just curious, you know, Elvis Costello is a, a musician that those who love him love him very, very, very much. Um, and yet you've never been the the mega-sized star that you threatened to become once years ago. And I'd like to talk well, about that. Threatened, it was threatened by other <laughs> threatened people. Threatened upon yeah. you, perhaps. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I made a I made a conscious decision about my the use of my time of uh, uh, 2010 2011. I, I I had an enforced little bit of time off. Um, I released a record in 2010 which I really loved. Third class, digging in his pocket, punching out the shadows underneath the socket. Tweet coat turned up against the fog. It didn't seem to demand that the music be played live. There was no demand for me to perform those songs. And it coincided also with my father's passing. And, and it's maybe that sort of just made me take stock. And I started to think that maybe records were a vanity that I shouldn't indulge. You know, that, that brought home how limited time was. And with having young children, I decided that if I was going to be away from home, I had better be really be bringing home my share of our family income. And so it was a much more certain bet to go out and play concerts. And I also felt that, that maybe I had an opportunity. Now I really did have too much material for one evening of <laughs> songs that I could create shows that, you know, I ended up creating two or three shows, stage shows I'm talking about. They weren't elaborate productions with huge, you know, ex expensive values. They were cheap carnival tricks that I used to frame uh, what I had, which is my songbook. The first one was called A Spectacular Spinning Songbook. It was a revival of a show I did first as a kind of dare in the mid 80s. We're going to read off some of the titles on the Spectacular Spinning Songbook tonight. We have every day I write the book. Deep Mouth Truth Opera. I want you. Turpentine, Clubland, and accidents will happen. And many, many others that you've never heard of where we used a game show wheel to select the next song. And I had a, you know, a beautiful assistant like a magician does. And it was you know. real, not rigged? It was real. It was real. I mean, sometimes we rigged it towards the end of the show to get a number to get off stage, but no, we let it go as it was, and it was it was a tremendous challenge for the band because they had to know some of our 150 songs at the drop of a hat, and you could get a run of three finale numbers to open the show, and then you'd have to find how you could continue the mood. You know, <laughs> everything everything conceivable happened. You'd have people that would come up, and you know, we we had very good cast members. You know, we had a dancer who was really 
really sympathetic. She was she was really good. She was doing a parody of a, like a go-go dancer. People weren't. Some people weren't terribly certain that the whole. They didn't realize the whole thing was a satire. They thought we were actually serious. And the whole point of it was to bring people on the stage and invite them. If you have you always you know you never could guess how many people really want to be a go-go dancer. You know, <laughs> and there were people on stage who should never dance that did. And that's a great moment. You know, because I'm a, I'm the worst dancer in the world. So. You know, I really have sympathy for people come up, but they threw themselves <laughs> into it, and we had some very nice. You know, we'd have, you know, mothers and sons come up and do it together, and married couples. We had a couple. We had one guy propose to his fiance. I started to claim that I was actually ordained at one point. You know, I, it really it, it it was a sort of semi-invented character I was playing. It's partly me and partly this character I was inhabiting. And then I then I started to I finish. Well, I applied myself to finishing a book I'd been working on for twelve years called Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink. And I then I then worked up another show over a couple of tours where I gradually gathered props. Started out with an on-air light like you find in an old radio studio, like the kind I saw when I would go with my dad to the radio broadcast. And then I added a television set which had a screen onto which I could project cues to the songs. Sometimes there were old advertisements. Sometimes there were family photographs. I could also get inside this TV and appear, as it were, on television, on the stage. And it was, again, semi-theatrical, semi-scripted. The anecdotes that I told by way of introduction were sort of frivolous versions of more serious mm. stories that appeared in the book. Sometimes the the... the the manuscript version was a lot more heartbreaking, and I would tell like a lighter-hearted version. A lot of the things were about some of the things about family were quite yeah. dark. You know, there were there were some things about my parents' uh, relationship, my, my my dad's sort of more wayward nature, which I sort of uh, unfortunately inherited for a period of my life. And um, so, you know, I was suppose I was working all of that stuff out, but because it was all in the songs already, and I, all I did was sort of like point people to maybe what they had only suspected about the songs. But the book we are, I gather, is real to the core. Yes, everything in the book is is you. Yeah, but let me. Ask I, you this. I chose to put it out of chronological sequence because yeah, I because yeah. I, I thought, well, Wikipedia does that. I mean, you want the emotional yeah. sense of it, and I fictionalized a few episodes where. Not because I was being evasive, but because I was trying to use fiction to summon up the mood of the the, rather than identify people, because it wasn't their identity that was the point of the story. It was the it was the feeling of the room I was in. You know, that was I only used that twice in the book. Your songs are all, as far as I know, copywritten Elvis Costello. Your book, however, is copywritten uh, by your given name, Declan McManus. Some of my songs are copy oh, copyrighted. Are. Uh, I changed it for a little while, and then I found that when people wanted to write with me or do my songs, of course, nobody had any idea who Declan McManus was, so they wanted an Elvis Costello song. You know, I mean, again, that's one of those things that I did, kind of as a just a little marker. Um, it's a gift to music critics to see something like that because they want a real sort of psychological significance yeah. into it. It's, it really isn't that, you know. I, I, I was, I, I was aware of the fact that the brand of my original appearance on the music scene was quite, was quite that. It was a brand in some people's view, even though to me it wasn't. It was my life, um, and the name was idiotic, and the appearance was idiotic. You know, I played up to it and I lent into the character that was sort of invented around me. But then after a little while, that gets a bit boring. 
And it gets dangerous as well. You know, you start to live it out and make the wrong choices in so many different ways. So you got to get um, out of it. So maybe I part of it was reasserting. You know, there was there was a person who was like completely on the outside of all of this ridiculous showbiz stuff um, that made the little tapes that got me my first record. You know, I mean, I I, I was making those in my bedroom. I I still sing some of the other songs that I was writing then. It was just the few that caught people's ear were the ones that coincidentally landed me in the studio right when this supposed new thing was happening in rock and roll. You know, I mean, I, I never really identified myself with it. Other people said you're part of this new wave thing. It was, that was just a label somebody made up as a matter of convenience. It's not, it wasn't a, it wasn't a game plan, you know. You did seem to recognize even then that, uh, I remember one, once you, I guess this was in your book maybe, you wrote the squarer I look, which I gather is English for angrier, yes? The, the angrier I look, the more the camera likes it. Um, how much of early on was you kind of putting on a, uh, a creative persona? I think it was a sort of, I, I saw an interview with uh, Wayne Shorter uh, in a documentary about Lee Morgan, where he talked about drinking brandy when he was younger, and he said it just created a little kind of a little kind of place around himself in which he did his work. It wasn't like he was really getting lit. It just had a it just took him out of the immediate environment. I, I understood exactly what that was, even though I, I'm a very different type of musician. Obviously, I'm not on that same level, but I'm not an improviser in that way. But I, I know that I did the same thing with, the, with aspects of the persona. The fact that I didn't speak on record at times, it all just created a bit of room around me to get on with the job without being interrupted. Oh, is that what it was? It was yeah. just that. It wasn't and that also, needed... I was probably just, I was probably just um, uh, anxious and nervous as well, because I, I actually, by nature, quite shy. And then you have to learn bravado. And of course, bravado easily, you know, you, then you get challenged, particularly by boring self-satisfied people, whether it be like a radio DJ or a journalist that thought they'd worked you out, that of course you put, go push it to a greater extreme just to confound them, just to horrify them more, you know. And hence you have those big standoffs, you know, with the sex pistols and somebody on TV. Well, it never got to that stage, really. Mostly I could handle the situation. And, and then also some people who were very kind, there were some... Older journalists, there was a woman journalist from Wales who interviewed me very early on, and I hadn't got any guard up for her. I found her charming, and she seemed to kind of see that I was serious about what I did, and in that way that sometimes younger people are almost a little earnest. And I see that. When I see the footage of it, it breaks my heart because I think it was like a real, you know, there wasn't any sort of generational animosity or any of that nonsense. You know, it was like it was, it was just... Genuine curiosity, somebody trying to do their job and me trying to do mine. I'd like to ask you about, um, well, your writing, and I could ask you all day about your writing. I, I don't get to, but um, I'm, I, I think you're a great writer. Um, Thank you. I think you're a great songwriter, but also I think um, lyrically alone, um, you're a great writer. But a puzzling one sometimes, or a challenging one sometimes, in that, um, on a couple dimensions. I'll start with the one. I'm just the 
Your lyrics are full of extraordinarily um, clever and memorable and cutting phrases and imagery that's evocative and it's specific. And yet, often, the actual theme or the plot of a story is a little bit removed and enigmatic. Opaque. And I want to know, is that a choice? Is that you? It is in some cases. I think think there's a really obvious shift in the writing on the album Imperial Bedroom in 81. I knew I was doing it then. That's the first record I ever published the lyrics. Up until then, I didn't think that they should be written down. I felt they needed to be heard at the same time as, you know, as the music. They didn't... They weren't little poems. I could have written poetry if I wanted to. I used to write poetry as a kid, and I don't know whether any, any it was any good, but I mean, I, you know, I knew how to write poetry, and I think poetry is sort of is the sort of use of words where music is heard but none is playing, isn't it? Don't know. That's I've one never, definition. Yeah, you know, I've, I've never I mean, heard you, that, but it makes sense. I don't know who said that. Maybe yeah. I did. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that where you sort of hear music right. in that's evoked by the rhythm and the cadence of the words without there actually being a musical accompaniment. I mean, that's that's one possible definition of poetry, you know. And I never really put myself on that level. It's a very high art form. Um, so I just wrote these things to be sung. And then I started to think, well, I like certain kinds of painting where there are more than one angle within the frame. Why can't a song replicate that mm. and cinematic cutting is like that it 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 fractures time it it goes backwards and just the act of editing to you know you see it from one point of view and then you're through a door and then you see the person standing in there all those things i'd i'd kind of referred to them in songs from as early as watching the detectives I mean, I'd use the stage or the film directions in the lyric. I'd done that a few times. But those, I just sort of push it further. And then other songs came up that were just fairly, that were very straightforward and I just wasn't very comfortable with the idea that I had to write. If I wrote about events that we all shared rather than say about matters of the heart, then I was less comfortable with making the easy slogan about it. It just, I didn't feel it was my job to do that or to tell people what to think, but to maybe try and find that little story that underlines something that, that I had seen that maybe somebody else hadn't. How often would you uh, write a lyric that you would need to get rid of because it was too obvious, too on the surface? I just didn't write it. I mean, I just, I, I don't think I ever did get rid of it because I thought it was too obvious. I just didn't write that. I mean, I'm sure I threw away, you know, I wrote very fast. So, I mean, I, 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 I'd realized right away if I was down a track that wasn't going to work. I never wrote any songs about rock and roll that I can think of. Radio, you know what I mean? There's a lot of songs ish. with the word rock and roll yeah, in yeah. the title. You know that kind of song that was sort I of do. celebrating the yeah. life? 
Just let me hear some of that rock and roll music. Any old way you choose it. I wrote some songs that were kind of about the, the the indulgences, but they were more like from the outside. I never felt that comfortable, even though I indulged just as much as anybody in in those things. I always stood off it myself, kind of. Indulge, you mean the lifestyle? Yeah. There were some moments of hedonism, I suppose would be the word, but I always sort of stood outside myself a little bit going, this is not really what you should be doing. Mm. You maybe know. maybe that's just a way of making an excuse for yourself, you know, like a, like, a, like, a, like a drunk who said, well, I could give up, but maybe, maybe I'll just after this drink, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And you were drinking, by the way, which sounds horrible to me, Coke and Pernod? Oh, that was just one afternoon. That was just one time you're saying? Oh, yeah. You don't do that twice. So along those lines, along the lines of be becoming the writer that you became, um, you wrote, I guess, in your book you, that you knew you hadn't been born with the good looks and confidence necessary for popular success. I'm curious. Face for the radio. Uh, <laughs> yeah, face for the radio. But was that really true? Did you really believe that? I mean, because in my reckoning of how you became who you are as an artist— you're growing up with his father who's, who's you know, in, in showbiz, and you right. have access to showbiz. And British music at the time was very exciting, and there was a lot of, there were rock stars being made all the time. Yeah. And you were, to my mind at least, I hope you agree, phenomenally good and talented and hardworking, et cetera, et cetera. And did you really kind of draw the the boundary where for yourself that I'm never going to be in the inner circle of stardom? Is that really the case? Well, I, I think that a couple of things color it. One is that that I was, you know, exposed, I suppose, to some elements of show business early on, just like anybody of my, you know, my, you, you have a sort of admiration for your parents' ability to do whatever it is they do, cook the dinner, you know, and go to work. And I'd go see my dad sometimes in the dance hall on a Saturday afternoon. That was just, you know, that was one perspective of performance. And he brought music into the house that he was learning for the weekly broadcast. Later on, after my parents separated, you know, he his life transformed. He he then sort of took on an appearance closer to, I said, I've said in my show, you know, closer to sort of uh, Peter Sellers in What's New Pussycat. He grew his hair long and he started to wear fashionable clothes and listen to contemporary music and started to incorporate those songs into what was otherwise a fairly unpromising environment of working men's clubs and social clubs because he left the safety of the nightly gig with the dance band and decided he wanted to do his own thing so that striking out and being independent thing was sort of like from his example but all the way along no matter what the music was or the style and bear in mind my tastes in music changed just like any teenager from every it was all about one thing the next day it was all about another <laughs> um it was always about the song i'd, I'd seen the sheet music transformed into a radio performance. My father used to go and make a little bit of cash money doing cover records where they did note-for-note -note covers of things. So 
the stardom of the individual people, with the exception of a band like the Beatles, who obviously everybody was, you know, fascinated and focused on all the way through those years and their various transformations. I I didn't really see that as something I could do. And by the time I <clears throat> I'd spent the last two years of schooling in Liverpool, which at that time was musically very quiet in the early 70s and tried to make my own way playing my own songs. I had a partner we sang in bars and any evening the way they would let us on the stage, really. We were making tiny little bits of money, just about covered our expenses. And I learned a little bit how to do it, but I never really thought that I was, you know, I looked at the, the television every Thursday to see Top of the Pops and saw the distance between the way I looked and felt and sounded and what was a pop singer right then, which was a lot of people in Baker foil with eye makeup on. That was that was the, hmm. you know, the music of that moment, the glitter moment, you know, glam moment. That seemed very distant from a 17-year-old, you know. Did in, you kind of wish you could do that? No, or? I yeah, never yeah. wanted to do that. Right. I might be the only person in English pop music that, you know, that made a record that never wanted to be David Bowie while still loving everything he did. You know, I, I never wanted to sort of look like him or I just loved his records. I, it was enough for me that he made those records. I didn't want to make them. I knew I couldn't, you know. There's also, so your music, again, I don't mean to summarize your music to you, but this is one one person's perception and your music is um, extraordinarily diverse and interesting on a lot of levels over the years. But a lot of your writing um, shows a sort of, um, uh, I don't know if cynicism is fair, distrust and frustration and often the belief that too many People and especially institutions are cruel and corrupt, maybe not of their own design, but they are hypocritical. And I'm curious if you accept my summary of that part attitude in part in your writing. It's not always that. If you accept that to some degree, whether um, you thought that maybe pop music, the kind of super popular pop music, couldn't contain that sort of commentary. Oh, no, I felt the opposite thing. I felt the opposite thing. I mean, I think like any teenager, I was a little bit self-righteous when I went, you know, when I was 17 about, and I thought I'd discovered the secret because I was putting, I remember telling a teacher, you know, a careers master, I was going to, I wasn't going to be in pop music. I was going to like take words and I was going to set them to music. And like I'd discovered a f magic formula and he just said, oh, you want to be a pop singer then? And they were sneering and just said, well, how ridiculous could that be? And it wasn't like they were thwarting my ambition. I didn't have any ambition. I was a purist, you know. I was a Puritan. What do you mean by that? A Puritan in what direction? It, I wasn't interested in those uh, trapping. And for one thing, I didn't think I was a performer. Hmm. I almost certain that I was a songwriter. Yeah. So For other people. Well, I, I sort of had a, by then I'd got possessed of the idea that, you know, that was, I'd watched too many Hollywood movies where somebody burst into a room and go, I've got a song for you and make them listen <laughs> to it. And I did do that for a few years. When I returned to London in 1973, I was playing my songs still around wherever they'd let me play, which were the remnants of the English folk club scene where, you know, Bob Dylan and Paul Simon had made their first steps in the early 60s. It was only 10 years 12 years later, you know, but it was quite changed the scene. We'd had all of the late 60s psychedelia. There was, you know, the music that was in the pop charts were mainly sort of like, like wasn't really yet quite disco, but it was like dance music and, and, and glitter. And, and the acoustic music, which I really loved, was mostly played by 
um, Californians mm-hmm. or people that came out of California. You know, James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, although she was Canadian, was was seen as Californian, Crosby, Stills and Nash. And that kind of music, it seemed quite remote, somehow glamorous. You know, they were. it was all operating on it. We never thought you would ever see those people. And they, there were lots of really good musicians playing around, you could see, and I... I'd run across them, but we didn't hold them in the same regard as the American musicians. And that's always been the way, the English thing, that whether it be jazz or rock and roll or even acoustic music. So I would go to publishing houses and try and get them to listen to my songs. And I think of them now, they were not at all suited to other people. You'd go with tapes or you'd go with a guitar? I would go with both. I would go with a reel-to-reel tape I'd made in the bedroom and and my guitar, and I'd make them listen to the songs, which, you know, they would take calls in the middle of the songs, and, you know, it was pretty... (laughs) You know, not good for the confidence, or maybe very good for the confidence, because you got... I got a little tougher. And I, I got... I got... I started to get... I got a few paying gigs play my own songs. I abbreviated my name to my initials. My dad always called me DP. So I adopted that. Then I then I adopted my great-grandmother's name, Costello, as we correctly say it in Ireland, but everybody said it Costello, like an Italian name. So I let them think that was Italian. Not that anybody really cared, but it was it looked better on a bill, you know, and I and then I became the resident singer in a club where quite good people came and played. And when so, did the Elvis come in? Not until not until I sent I, I took a tape to my first record company, Stiff, which Stiff. was a you know it was a little company that started with like a thousand bucks, not even maybe not even that. They borrowed money and put, started putting out singles in 1976. My producer. And who was one of my favorite singers, Nick Lowe, was their first artist. And I was the first person to knock on the door with a, with a demo tape. And at first, they, they had me record a couple of songs, but very much with the view of somebody else singing them. It was still seen as demos. They weren't seen as releases. And then little Even by, for Stiff? Yeah, they, wow. the first recordings, they, they weren't sure that I wasn't a writer for somebody else. That was really the objective. My man, my managers were managing Nick Lowe and Dave Edmonds' band Rockpile, and Dave didn't write. So they tried to sell Dave on what you know a couple of my songs, and they tried to give them to other people. Thank goodness they didn't take. And people them. found them sort of too quirky. So that they, in the end, they they suggested first putting half a record out with another songwriter because it's like Chuck meets Bo. You know, there's a chess record with one side of Chuck Berry, one side of Bo Diddley. And thankfully, I just ended up writing so many songs that I, there were twelve, and they put that out. I was still working in an office till the week before my this record came out. This was for Elizabeth Arden is yeah, where you were? I was were? just working in a, I was a, a computer operator. I'd sit in a little air-conditioned cubicle and, you know, pretend I knew what was happening with the computer and write my songs in a book, you know. And sometimes if I had to work a night, an evening shift, it was just one operator. It was only an IBM 360. It wasn't a complex computer. It was a, probably not as powerful as your phone, you know. And I, I just wrote my songs in the evenings and I was still working there I had singles out and I was still working there let, let me ask you an uh, I guess an existentially depressing question mm-hmm. which is for every one of you Elvis Costello or Declan McManus working that job and writing songs for every for every hundred thousand of you there's one who actually gets to do what you did mm-hmm. and there are questions of talent versus hard work and opportunity and luck and so on. What do you say to all those people out there who have some kind of dream 
of being um, a creative. Mm-hmm. And, you know, many people are realistic. They don't expect to reach huge success or even do it, um, you know, as their livelihood, even partially. But do you discourage those people from hanging on to that? Are you, you talking about right them? now or back then? Uh, I'd say right now, yeah. Right now would seem to be tougher to start because, you know, the way in which it's been... I'm beginning to think there was a narrow window of opportunity, which I caught the last few years of, where it was possible to make a reasonable amount of money from making records and having a musical career, other than to just fund the next go-round on the machine. Um, Obviously, before that, people bought the rights to songs. They sometimes put the names of the publisher or the singer onto the song. That's how you come to see songs that are credited to Al Jolson or Elvis Presley or Frank Sinatra, who to my knowledge never wrote anything, you know? Um, And of course, latterly, uh, when I say latterly, sort of like almost 25 years now, there's been a shift to the ownership of all of the medium through which music and most other entertainments appear, and it's transformed the the, the sense of ownership. On the one hand, uh, the delivery of those things has become a commodity owned usually by super corporations who are not in the same business as I'm in. In other words, say, Universal Records, who hold the, 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 the rights for the time being to my catalogue, are owned in turn by a French utilities company. You know, they run trains, sewage works. They're not really in the music business, are they? They're not in the art business, for sure. Um, so they are the people to whom the bosses who are above the people who hire me to work make records. That That's who they are. Now, independent companies, like the one I'm recording for now, still have relationships, you know, because you have to get the physical records out somewhere, and those people control the distribution networks. But, of course, as it's become a matter of instantaneous access, we're moving to a a model now where nobody really has any physical records anymore, or at least as generations of people that have no knowledge of that. They have no expectation of owning a physical copy of a record, unless it's a fetish object like a vinyl record that they bought in a hipster store, they, 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 they can access something much more readily on the internet, whether through YouTube or Spotify or such a system. So why would they want to clutter up their house with a bunch of records? Now, there are people that will contradict that, but that is a big model now for it. So why can't you have all of those systems? Rather than sort of sitting around whining about it, why not just say, well, that's happened. You can sort of say there are some... You know, there are some things that are unfair or possibly even dishonest about it. But so it's always been the way, you know, that people would say, yeah, you make that record for me, I'll give you a Cadillac. And (laughs) then they would go make millions off that title (laughs) and the guy would just be driving around until the wheels fell off the Cadillac, you know. The artists have always had a difficult, hard time getting what they, you know, and they're more egotistical moments and some of the megalomaniac moments, you know, they, they probably believe that they've been cheated in some way of a fate, but maybe they just didn't work hard enough or they weren't, or they were too, you know, they, you know, one thing that really affects some people is they're too hip to work. There's a lot, I know a lot of people that, you know, that think of themselves as very groovy, that disdain major popular music. Do you know who I like? I like Bing Crosby. Mm. 
He was a huge selling artist. I don't, I don't dislike pop music. I actually, you know what kind of music I don't care for? It's boring rock music that's sort of so pompous. I like rock and roll a lot, but I don't hear the thrill in this square music and you and each type of music gets infected by that kind of squareness or self-satisfaction or self-fulfilling prophecy that happens in every form of music and somebody else will tell you that happened to me because they they judge you that way mm. you know where did um your tremolo come from is that what it's called tremolo vibrato in your voice when you sing don't look now the soul you shoot that glass did you always do that? Was it a conscious thing? Did you uh, do it as a kid? It's about three different factors. One is that I was aware of that way of singing. From your dad's music? or He, he definitely listened to Billy Eckstein. When I said goodbye, I'm sorry. My dad on some records that he made, he doesn't have a lot of records under his own name, but the few where he sings in his true voice, oddly enough, you can hear elements of Eckstein in his vocal delivery. And he's one of my mother's favorite singers, along with Tony Bennett. Uh, and, you know, ballad singers tended to use vibrato. The vibrato that might have been inherent in my voice, uh, I think, was so obvious because there were so many words in my songs there were not many long-held notes in the <laughs> early songs they were mostly very quick fire and when i slowed the pace down to sing ballads then it became more apparent and and also simultaneously to that um i have to credit chrissy hind with reintroducing oh, the warm vibrato idea into popular music of the then time I'm talking about 80 to 83, that period there, after, you know, she made her appearance about 79, 80. It reminded me of, like, the sounds that I loved about Dusty Springfield, who was probably my favourite singer um, at that time. Beyond that, there's a certain amount the vibrato is a product of a, maybe a physiological. Um, I, I, there are some. Many I think, can't do it, right? Many singers uh, can't do it. Uh, yeah, but I think also I think that part of it is uh, physiological. Uh, uh, I guess it's a flaw. In really, my, in my in my breathing, that no. it, like in my really? maybe my my the whole engine works like that, and it's. Uh, like uh, if you if you live with a uh, uh, something like a heart murmur, you 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 know it can be like that. You're saying your vibrato is a, a handicap of some kind. It's not a <laughs> handicap. It's, I mean, it's, a, it's a physiological fact. It's a really so yeah. you don't try. No. You don't try to put it on. Your voice does that. I think the breathing, the the breathing really? does that because I think it's uh, and it's oh, like it's uh, it's like uh, it's like a limp. It's like a limp. You could make it. You could. You there are people who have great gates, you know, that you remember, like 
Robert Mitchum had a particular gait. Think of it like that. It's my John Wayne kind of gait <laughs> with a brother. Just think of it like John Wayne but and you've got it. I thought the story you were telling me about Chrissy Hind was that... I, I, I didn't she, suppress it then. I, yeah, I, I, I love Chrissy singing so much that I thought, well, okay, you can have that in modern pop music like yeah. you could have it in the 60s, like... like you know, because um, it was corny. I mean, if you'd heard it in the '60s, it would have been. Yeah, but I, I don't think there's a single corny note that Dusty ever sang. She yeah, well, just sounded a, yeah. like she. Was, I, when I say, I guess I mean the certain. Well, I think there's the, certain. You know, if you hear some things from the '50s, they sound, they sound very over emotive. They sound kind of uh, trumped up. But but you know, they're just and also you know, some people can't hear opera. You know, they they think that's ridiculous, and other people hear beauty in that way of singing. How about you? I hear it. I hear really beauty in in a lot of the opera singers. I mean, there's there's times when you go and it isn't good, and the people. But I but I know the physical dedication that 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 goes into that. And if you listen to Shalapin. <laughs> Hans Hotter, or Fischer Descal, or any of the great recorded singers. And then there's the people I've seen, my friend Anne-Sophie von Otto. I mean, I, I was a fan of hers from the from just going to the concert hall to always hear her sing. And then we became friends and we made a record together. Summer is gone, I love all broken bicycles out in the rain Motor cars, handlebars, bicycles for two Broken-hearted jubilee She wanted to make a record where she let go of some of the training of her voice but you know she's incapable of singing an ugly note you know and and of course some of the things that are proposed in the singing of a popular song are sounds that are an anathema to to mm. a trained singer so it's quite difficult for them to unlearn some of their training <laughs> and, and to to be unbuttoned enough to do it do you in, still uh do you still have the scream do you still scream ever do i what the scream you used to do I can, yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to do it in here because it's loud. But uh, oh, I don't, there's I don't a mind, but I, no, I don't I'm not going to try yourself. it now. But I yeah. mean, uh, yeah, it doesn't always, it's not something I was conscious of doing. I can, I mean, it's not really thinking, oh, I better put a scream in there. It's just something you do. I, it's sort of a harmonic. I'm thinking in particularly in terms of the beginning of Man Out of Time, it sort of sounds like a sort of sounds like a, a alto saxophone playing harmonics. It's not. It's actually more than one note, you know. And I like that when it came out. It all went squirrely, and it just like the. I love those things. I mean, there's different singers whose techniques are fascinated by. You know, I used to love Bobby Blueland. He always used to say, Bleh! Every time you cry. He used to sound like he was clearing his throat. It sounded like, you know, and Al Green has a... And these are singers that have so much voice compared with me. There's, I like singers who are kind of triers. 
huh, like Rodanko. Yeah. It sounded like always uh, uh, like uh, it, that, there was kind of a kind of nervous thing to the way he sang that that I, I really loved, and it felt very human. And there's something very beautiful about that, and it's probably why we were able to respond to music in other languages without understanding what's being sung. We may be fascinated by where the emphasis lies in a kind of music that uses either a different rhythm or a different scale. So it's always surprising us. And the timbre of the voice, is you can tell there's a yearning in it or a, a sense of joy or a sense of lament. I can listen to religious music mm. in the same way without necessarily believing the same thing that the singer is. Mm. I can listen to gospel music or cantors or you know, whatever recordings that it's just, it's what the pe the singer believes in. Mm. Um, Joe Loss was Jewish. I assume there was a line in your book about how he, yeah, he wanted your dad to have been Jewish. Yes. <laughs> he was absolutely convinced that my dad was. And are, are, are we convinced your dad wasn't Jewish? I was kind of hoping your dad was Jewish. I, I actually don't know. Um, because I, I think it a bit unlikely, but of course it, you know, because of the background of the family, mm -hmm. Who knows? I mean, we can't get back very far with records with, mm. with Irish people. There were, you know, there's my great grandfather was what would be called now an economic migrant. Mm. You know, he left in the generation after the famine. And unlike a lot of people, he didn't go to America. He just went to Merseyside. Right. You know, and so I've no idea if he hadn't died in a relatively avoidable industrial accident, I might not even be sitting here talking to you because maybe I'd be digging a ditch or loading coal onto a ship because that's what he did. Yeah. You know, and the only reason that the, the, the occupation of musician appears in my family is because my grandfather was placed in an orphanage and from there became, joined the British Army when he was 12 as a boy soldier, as a, as a bandsman. And, you know, that chance event seems to have derailed our family into a line of work in music. <laughs> I've no way of knowing whether it would have been any different. Had you not become a musician, um, presumably you wouldn't have stayed at Elizabeth Arden forever. What do you think you would have done, though, had it not worked out? I, I've, I just never had any doubt that I would do it, something eventually. I don't, it never occurred to me. When you say you didn't have doubt, meaning you had confidence that it would work, or you just didn't have an alternate uh, I didn't idea? Have, I never have never had any. Oddly enough, it sounds really strange, but I didn't have any other ambition than just to do this, including like I didn't imagine any of the things that happened to me because they were all from the making of the first record to right now, just the thing that happened next. So do you feel fortunate in that regard, or do you feel like this is Enorm just... Uh, enormously, even though... In many ways, you know, I could have had a much more conventional form of success, but I've watched friends of mine who are much better known become confined by their success, you know, and to bear the expectations of an audience and, and not being able to outdistance their own shadow and things like that. So it seems like a life you'd want, but the grass is always greener. You know, the rewards that I have managed to kind of stay ahead of the wolf, you know, by <laughs> basically working most of the days since I was 17. And most people would regard me as very, very fortunate, but I'm sure a lot of people I, that, that imagine I'm, you know, wealthy beyond all dreams. And I, I'm, I'm really not. I'm, I, I work to maintain, to look after the people that I want to look, look, look out for, for as long as I can do that. And to do the next thing. Quite often, the, the money that comes in to make a, a record funds that project, like being an independent filmmaker. It's not about 
it's not about sort of like hitting some imaginary number or moving yourself to some other echelon. I've never, ever thought of that. I mean, I think five minutes in the late 70s, we had dreams of breaking America, cracking America. That was the thing. But but when you get there, you sense the vastness of it very quickly. So you, um, I think everyone who knows your music, uh, including me, would think of you, would consider you a, uh, a an extraordinarily creative person. You're the kind of person that people use the phrase creative genius on. That's really crazy. I, it is crazy. But um, yeah. but here's my question for you, really. What, we'll put aside the genius thing, because that is just a yeah. silly, question, silly argument. The creative part, I want to know. Um, do you feel your life is an exercise in, th- that your work is an exercise in creativity and you carve out time and place and mood in which to be creative or is it work for you? Um, it's, I think of myself, uh, if I think of, I don't really think in terms of definition like a, like a name tag, but if you actually ask me the diff- did it distance, I say I, I was a worker of a kind I work at what I do, and then there might be moments of inspiration that visit you unexpectedly. Can you give, a, don't can you give sit, an example? Well, any song arriving is a mysterious sort of thing. I mean, it can be it can range from carrying around a phrase in a notebook for four years before it joins up with some other thoughts, or or you know, a, a line of melody that seems to bring it to life and allows you to kind of you know to represent something that you want to share with people. Or a song can just appear, the whole thing, the words and music, it can, time stops. and Really? That's happened? It's, oh, yeah, it happens. Anything on the new record that happened like uh, that? Not so much in these, because more of them were collaborations. Right. So then you are obviously, you're making a statement and waiting for somebody else's re- reply. So it's like, a, you know, it's like writing away for something. Which of these songs, though, would you say came to you most fully? Um. And when I say fully, I mean maybe it's even just the idea or the instrumentation, and not. Uh, oh, well, the instrumentation—that's a different thing. Yeah. That was that, that the instrumentation and the orchestration of these songs was very was sort of more like a. a they were very complete to me when when the songs were finished. The minute I decided that we were going to do them as a as a band, uh, then I also started to think of like you're hearing how the horns w- even in the. I strings was hearing out? everything really? and the vocal and the background voices that you know the, the the vocal arrangements, the string arrangements, the horn arrangements. They were all, to my mind, almost extensions of the composition. So as we arranged the our parts, I I wanted the. I wanted, you know, the whole point of the exercise was to sort of trust in my cohorts. We had gone out last year and and looked at the the songs from the album Imperial Bedroom, which the original band who played at the attractions, two of whom play in the Imposters, we truthfully never had the patience to play many of those songs well. The ones that survived into our live repertoire were songs that were easily adapted to the way we more commonly played, which was more frenetic. And the other songs, which were quite detailed in the studio, we didn't have the patience for the little details and nuances, nor did we have the voices. Nobody could sing in that band so, except me. So we never had any vocal harmony on stage for the last, you know, 15 years or whatever it is. Davey Farragher has been in the band as a bass playing a singer or singing bass player. So we've had two-part harmony, but we've also started to 
you know, uh, in, incorporate two other singers into the live. Yeah, so Kit and Coroy and Brianna Lee in this case, and and on some songs, Davy's elder brother Tommy. So we could have. So between between us, we could. Davy being a very good uh, vocal arranger in his own right. Although I sort of sketched out all the parts in my demos, we would Davy and I would then discuss what combination of voices best used, just the same way as I didn't arrange every song for the same configuration of instruments. There's a bassoon on one song. There's a, a woodwind quintet where you might have expected to hear a string quartet. Though you could imagine them playing the same parts on stripping paper, but I wanted the, the, the sense of like something breathing, which the wind instruments brought. And... So that was, and you're all, hearing, that, but you're hearing all that. I was hearing that in my all of that in my head, and then it's just something that I've learned over the years, which is, whereas I used to have to kind of, whenever I had something outside of the regular instruments of the band, I had to trust somebody to write it down. Sometimes mm. it would get a little changed; it would, something would get lost in the translation. And in the early '90s, I learned how to write music down. I was, you know, it was. Quite you didn't an, learn until then. I mean, no. you grew up knowing what music was. Reading yeah, it but I never had any need to write it down because right. the sort of songs I started out with, they they would be, in some ways, they would have been attenuated by writing them down. You mm. had to feel them. But these songs, it was all a process of paring down the arrangements to the essentials in the rhythm section. And Steve Naive, who's been my cohort for nearly forty years. I mean, he's a remarkable musician. I mean, he was an he was a nineteen year old Royal College of Music student, so his education was obviously not complete there. But what he brought to the band, and then what he's developed in all of the music, not just playing with me, but his own compositions. I mean, he wrote an opera. You know, I mean, he's he's explored things and piano records where he's followed his own instincts about music. He's the kind of person who can give you lots of invention to any theme you give him. But also, you have to have some discretion about which part of what he's playing is really magical and which complements the song and which... Are you good at, is feeling. he good at accepting that from you? I think we he... worked... I, I, think the, the, I think there are some times when I've just been inclined, just let Steve go. <laughs> and when I think about it later, maybe I could have been more, more discerning but it was so thrilling to hear him play i didn't do that so i'm not going to i'm not going to retrospectively re-edit re the records nearly all of the credit for the production should go to sebastian Kreese. Right. he recorded it he was the one that made sure the order was kept to things he got the beauty of the sound he mixed it my contribution to the production was really in the editorial of the music in that I had to be there, the discerning voice of anything there. I'd say to Pete, play a simpler fill or give me something different there if you can. Steve, leave this hole because there's going to be strings there and then you'll play together and the next time... Well, he couldn't know that because I hadn't told him. So you don't let him play through, then edit out. You decide... Uh, well, in some cases, we, we would get in and he'd start to play and I'd say, we maybe need to leave more of a hole there or don't do that variation because it's not agreeing with what else is coming because we did do everything separately. Most records I've done in the past, 90% of them have been arranged from the voice outwards. Right. So I would sing on the live take and often that would be the take. So that that would was a lot of pressure for the band in that uh, if I got something I liked, they would have to live sometimes with a flawed performance if you couldn't fix it in some way. In this case, I didn't want to do that. I wanted everything to be that we would agree what we were going to play and we would draw on everybody's strengths independently. What was that experience like for you then uh, as, a, as a singer? 
well, it, that's really like getting to my dream to be like Dusty, you know, of going in. And like, if you see those old pictures of like where they, they had the band in the studio and the vocalist in the booth, that's what it felt like. Because usually when you're singing in the studio, you're imagining, I'm going to add some stuff to this. And sometimes when you re-sing a song, it's because the weight of the original performance wasn't quite right. There's nothing the matter with the singing, but maybe it was it was too aggressive or not aggressive enough and so or not forceful enough and then when you add those other instruments the vocal sounds muted in this case i had everything to support me it, it was like being on stage with an orchestra or well, an i was ensemble gonna say i mean it. i don't mean to be a shrink here but to to some degree was it um your father died a while back was no it, no the people no people, fulfillment people said that when I worked with Burt Bacharach yeah. because I wore a tuxedo, you know, but they'd never <laughs> seen my dad in a caftan, you know what I mean? It was never psychological. Yeah. I'm not given to that kind of thing. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it. I just enjoyed doing it this way. But equally, when I invited Burt Bacharach to play with the band, you know, we had written about 25 songs over the last 12 years for two musical projects, one of which was based on our original album, Pended From Memory. Uh, it's quite difficult to thread a story through a group of existing songs unless it's a biographical uh, show about the songwriter or the artist. And therefore, we ended up with another 10 or so songs written for Pented From Memory, but they were also very slow and melancholic, like the original collection, which I guess scared the producers that we were engaged with, and the show seemed to stall. And after a couple of years of um, no further movement, I asked Bert two years ago if he would consent to let me bring them out into the light or the ones that I felt I could sing, because I just thought they were too good. I mm. mean, I thought they were, you know, they were, they were absolutely crazy for good songs. In the case of the two that he leads, they're all his music and I'm only the lyricist. One of the most amazing things to me and wonderful things is that Bert entered into a different kind of collaboration 25 years ago than he'd ever had. And he continued to return to that style of collaboration with me. Actually, I think uniquely, I don't think he's co-written music with anybody else, but maybe Neil Diamond. So that's pretty good company to be in. You know, Neil, who was written tremendous songs as well. But Bert was open to a different form of collaboration, a dialogue in music, which why why would he need to do that? He's Bert Bacharach, you know. But that just shows the curiosity. Hey, come on, that, you're Elvis Costello. No, but it's not like that. It's like, you know, uh, it has always been the beauty of this collaboration that, that on the one hand, you had somebody who was open to something different, despite all the experience, despite all of his achievements. And the second thing is, you can't get anything past him. <laughs> Because he, you know, he hears everything. And <laughs> what was it, the song you said you sent to him and he said, nope, it's done? What was uh, that? Stripping Paper. Yeah. Because yeah. that was also written with view to being in this musical uh, production. Now I got no place in her heart. Let me go back to the start. You know, I'm pretty shrewd about these things because I've read all my musical, you know, Broadway biographies. And I know how many great songs have been in and out of shows. They've been cut at the last minute. There was the Gershwin minute. song you wrote. Uh, that was in three shows. And the Man didn't... I Love, yeah, unbelievably, in three shows. And I think uh, I think uh, lots of Rogers and Hart songs went the same way. So much better songs than I'll ever write have been in a cut out of shows. So I'm, I, I have no, I have no, um, uh, uh, make no apology for being like 
tricky enough to to <laughs> make sure that the song stands up on its own because I don't really care for songs even in opera where they go, I'm walking up the stairs, I'm walking down the stairs, it's a lovely day today. You know, I don't care about that stuff. I want to hear about the feelings or something to do with the story that's unique. And and obviously these songs that we ended up with, a few, few of them, quite a few of them are about how we decode the way people look at each other. I see you looking at me Don't Look Now, the second song on the record, is a woman looking at a man saying, I see you looking at me. I know what you're thinking. I can read your mind. And trying to imagine what is contained within the gaze. She's trying to see what's contained within that man's gaze. Is it, is it admiration? Is it appreciation? Is it lust? Is it ill intent? In a frame. Under glass, they'll always be together in soul love. But photographs can lie. Another song that Bert wrote the music for, Photographs and Liars, the story of a daughter realizing upon discovering her father's infidelity, he falls from a pedestal on which she's placed him. No, he cheats. Why can't she see through him? He used to be more valiant than vain. Put him on a pedestal, and it's a long way down there. I'll never be. That seemed to be the way these particular songs worked out. They weren't the last 12 things that happened to me. Maybe that's something to do with, well, obviously it's something to do with the fact originally they had a theatrical origin, but even contained within the two or three, four minutes of, of the song, I didn't, I just didn't have the feeling of wanting to be selfish in them being my direct experience rather than things that I knew to be true and things that observed the kind of reactions people had to a discovery. The song stripping paper that I mentioned a moment ago is uh, the, the words of a, a woman who's discovered her husband's infidelity and I absentmindedly almost pulls a layer of wallpaper from the wall and it that's just peeling off and she peels it back and behind it is a simpler pattern that, sort of is a symbol of when they had less money and beneath that another even simpler one that may have been on the wall when they first got that apartment and where they had drawn a pencil mark for their daughters to measure their daughter's height. Here's the pencil of a measuring mark Now I got no place in her heart Well when you describe it it sounds a little sentimental but when you sing it it doesn't it doesn't read as sentimental because the idea of somebody having almost like this book of their life and, you know, including like joyful erotic memories that are, that she's wrestling with. I don't think that that's not something that, that anybody is going to have any problem understanding. <laughs> it's not, it's not opaque. 
and and the lyrics are pretty to the point on this record with the possible exception of the first song on the record which is in itself a sequel underline yeah yeah i took the character jimmy yeah jimmy from my song <laughs> jimmy standing in the rain which i wrote uh, well it was released on a record in 2010 and jimmy was a portrait of a vaudeville singer musical singer in the north of england who was traping around doing this kind of trying to sell cowboy songs to you know it would be the worst time in life to try and do that <laughs> and you know i i pictured him kind of like you know, beaten down alcoholic probably could have tb you know he's like got the full challenge we know that he's desperate and we know that he's woke he's the mystery guest we'll punch they told the young girl with a good part just keep him amused whatever finds some sort of comfort in the arms of a woman who in the throes of passion calls out the name of another man i mean nothing about his life is encouraging and he feels himself abandoned and then i i just left him there at the end of the song and i don't know i started thinking about what if he what if he were discovered and kind of disinterred and brought into the realm of of light entertainment in england in the in the 50s it's only 20 years later we think of these eras as totally independent but of course they're not you know and now he's on one of those shows where they used to blindfold people and make them guess people's occupation or identity and he's put in the charge of a young woman who is the production assistant of the show and they tell her don't don't tell him your name you know don't don't don't, don't let him whatever, you, know, whatever you think don't let him drink because he's disreputable and he might potentially be you know going to hit on her and when they get alone and when they do get alone he sort of is charming and he starts to ask her all about herself and about her boyfriend, boyfriend. and about her family the whole family and tree yeah <laughs> and then you see how he's maybe making a trap and she almost leans into it and she finds him like he's he can see he's a ruin but like people are fascinated by ruins sometimes even <laughs> when they know they shouldn't be and, and then they, there's the line I can't believe this is happening, happening to me. We are to read that in one of two ways, I assume. Maybe that she's flattered momentarily by his attention, and in that, and in that little indecision, you know, is the risk. Uh, but it, I tried to make it so that I wasn't judging her or judging him. Even he's obviously not right, you know. In the last verse, he it says he shuttered, shuttered his eyes, that he made a very conscious effort not to look at her, and he's thinking about. He thought of a drummer, and he considered a snare, because he's laid this trap before, and he may have even taken advantage of that situation before. He's had the had the. You and know, he's trying to talk himself. He's out always of trying it here? to talk himself. Well, I'll leave it to the listener to decide whether he says you know, he says he don't get a record if he never get caught. Right. You know, and. It, it's it's a long it's a scene. way down from that. It's a scene that, we're, that that isn't exactly, it's not a new one, you know. It's not made up last week. Quite plainly. No, it isn't. And it's been there all of, you know, it's been it's been a scene I've seen, I've, I've witnessed, you know. So it's, um, I just thought that was the where I would leave him. I don't know whether Jimmy will ever make another appearance <laughs> now. Maybe, 
Maybe in a stripy suit. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the terrible thing about it. You, you know, just quickly, what do you do for fun? I'm curious. What you? It's a family show. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, plainly, you read and listen to a lot of music, and you have a family and so on. I'm just curious. Are you? Well, a- that's that's really enough. I mean, I I like to see my friends. I I keep in touch with people. I mean, life is full, and you know, between your the the people that you care for, and as people get older and more vulnerable in your family, you you have to spend time with them because that time becomes more and more precious. I I don't feel that I'm uh, I'm oppressed by by anything really. I'm curious about things, so I, and I mean, I I'm not I'm never really thought of myself as being cynical. I don't like the when I see the word cynical attached to my name. I think I'm very skeptical. I think you're right to be skeptical about um, institutions and the things you mentioned and I and the systems of, of control. But whether they're the small ones between two people or the larger ones that are governments or corporations. But I don't, I get... I just laugh at the idea uh, that uh, people tell you people in in my line of work shouldn't shouldn't make a comment, particularly when the comments are not unsubtle uh, slogans. I mean, I try even say a song like "Underline." It's it's got three or four points of view within the song. It's written so the music is opens with a with a strong rhythm. And then becomes, as it becomes, the, there's more doubt in the, the motivation of what's being said. The music changes. He whistles out a tune. His words don't always rhyme. But we will be right back. And then it explodes into a more celebratory type of music. Which I suppose has a has a meaning in that it you know the show does go on despite all of this, and often the scene in the backstage is something we draw a veil over. Something we used to draw a veil over. That's the same with everything. I mean, problems that that I thought would have gone away a long time ago are still there. You know, everybody sang that song, and it didn't change. So you've got to keep trying. For some people, it's you know some people are are in a lifelong service to a better way to live, mm-hmm. and and some people are just trying to are just jesters, and I guess I'm one of them. Well, I gather that um, doing this, sitting down and talking about yourself, is not what you do for fun. But I very much appreciate your uh, well, making it's a, your questions have been very you know they're not a, they're not a, any any pain to me to answer. I hope there's been something of worth. Absolutely, Thank I enjoyed you. it very much. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thanks to Elvis Costello for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks also to Mark Satloff for making it happen. If you haven't already done so, check out our How to Be Creative series, episodes 354 and 355 so far. It features other creative types like Ai Weiwei, Jennifer Egan, Wynton Marsalis, James Dyson, Roseanne Cash, and Myra Kalman. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out more of these full interviews on Stitcher Premium. 
We've already published many extras from our sports series there as well. On Stitcher Premium, you can use the promo code FREAKONOMICS for one month free. And our entire catalog is available there without ads. Freakonomics Radio is produced by Stitcher and Dubner Productions. This episode was produced by Matt Frassica with help from Allison Craiglow, Greg Rippon, and Rebecca Lee Douglas. Our staff also includes Alvin Melleth, Harry Huggins, and Zach Lipinski. You can subscribe to the Freakonomics Radio podcast on any podcast app. Feel free to leave us a nice rating or review. We can also be heard on NPR stations across the country, and we can be reached at radio at Freakonomics.com. Thanks for listening. You used to hold him right in your hand I bet it took all he could take Sometimes I wish that I could stop you from talking When I hear the silly things that you say Stitcher Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.